0: Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This week, your hosts are Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and myself, Mark Raycroft. Our guest this week is Tim Irvin, and you are going to learn a lot in the very near future about this fascinating man and his adventures. But Before we dive into that, guys, let's spin off our pro tips for this week's podcast. I'll jump in. My pro tip, once again, is more about outdoor adventure than it is photography. I want to balance the scales with these guys this way. What it is, is something, it's quite simple. So it's a therm a rest bedroll for hiking, camping, and why is this relevant? I learned about these a handful of years ago. There's no weight to them. You roll them up there's a trick to this, you roll them up, you stow them in your bag, you carry them on your flight, if you're camping in any way. If you're camping on hard ground, if you're glamping in a vehicle, like a truck or a camper, if there's no bed, you've got to bring some supportive comfort to sleep on. Or even if you have an air mattress and it's early spring or autumn or cold temperatures in any way, the Thermarest is a game changer. Why this is? Is it insulates underneath you, or even on a cot for that matter? For those of you who are fortunate enough to bring a cot in your camping and tent trips, it has saved our night's sleep on many occasions. Now, I learned something in Central Alaska. I watched a mountaineering shop where they rented out gear to mountain climbers, and this. Thermarest is is the one that I have and I like and again I'm not affiliated with the company. It's a base camp model. It's the thickest model I could find, but it still rolls up really compactly. You open up the valve, you roll it. I put my knees on it and slowly do it. It compresses down to nothing. But when I watched this guy who worked at this mountaineering shop, he rolled it once, and I'm like, wow, that's flat, so small that roll. Then he rolled it. He closed the valve, then rolled it it again, opened the valve, and did it a second time and that's what they were sending people up mckinley with that they were renting or mountain climbing in the area about the thermorest care about it is something i learned again from my camping and hiking and adventure buddy bill i always just kept them rolled up when i came home stowed away with my gear that's not good for them so you open it up let it go flat open the valve let the air go in and store it somewhere behind a couch behind a bed somewhere like that it'll last much longer than keeping it compacted and this is another learning curve for me that's a little bit embarrassing this story i used to unroll it on my camping trips open the valve and start blowing on the thing right away i spent 15 minutes blowing my lungs out red in the face sweating getting it to where i need it to be that's not necessary
1: now, hold the, on hold on and then as soon as you woke up after being passed out. <laughs> passed out, exactly. I've seen stars doing this.
0: I have. And I, you know, I have. I have seen stars blowing so hard on this stuff. So, man, I'm going to, I mentioned Bill one more time. We were in the in, in an interior trip together. And I open my roll and I start blowing on it to inflate it. And he's frying up some fish. And we're about to have dinner. He says, why don't you just lay that flat in your tent? Open it. It fills itself with air. What? I've been doing yep. this for years. Now, it doesn't get tight with air, but it saves you 75 or 80% of the effort. Give it 20 minutes, and it's inflated, and you don't see stars, and you don't pass out. <laughs> yep. But you know, they're
1: pretty cool and they've evolved. You know, you say Thermarest and that is a brand, but Thermarest tends to be a noun, right? It tends to be a descriptor of that particular type of a mattress pad. But there's so many now that are so much more, I mean, they compact so tightly now compared to even five years ago. And I use them, so we'll spend a lot of time glassing, right? So Mm -hmm. you get to a spot and you'll sit on a knoll or something and you'll just glass and glass and glass and sometimes you can sit there for an hour. I'll take mine and just take it throw it in the pack with the newer ones that make they are super small. You just and then it becomes like a little pad when you're just sitting out there glassing. It makes it for you know and it's not a lot of weight to be packing around. So it's kind of comfortable for those reasons too. You wouldn't want to do it with the nitro pad that you're carrying around. You got a king size mattress going out there, but right,
0: it's just big enough to fit me. But yeah, you're right. They're they're all different shapes now and sizes and, and for something like that, that's a whole other application that's worthwhile.
1: Right. And they even make these things called crazy chairs. That's a brand too, but they're made for a thermores to fit in and it becomes a little chair. So your thermos gets blown up, it gets put in this little chair, it's it's a 90-degree angle, and it's got these two webbing straps that connect, and then it becomes a little seat for camp. So it, there's so many uses for them. It's an g- awesome pro tip.
0: There's Well, and, yeah, they shrink down to hardly anything, and they can make your night's sleep so much more comfortable and so much warmer. Like in the, in the colder seasons, your heat escapes below you. Your sleeping bag's flat if you're on an air mattress or if you're on the ground, for that matter, if you're just toughing it on the ground. This makes a big difference. Or the minimal weight it adds to the pack. In most packs you just strap it to the outside, you know, if it's not raining and anyway. It's on something those that-
1: sleeping bags, you know, when it gives you a rating on a sleeping bag, if it's a mm-hmm. plus thirty or a minus ten or whatever, that whole rating is based on having a mattress pad. It's not based on the sleeping bag by itself. So they take that into account. So if you got a minus ten bag, it's only minus ten if you're on a therm or on some sort of a mattress pad. So and just I know think-
0: that. And don't they also account for you wearing some clothing?
1: That I don't know, but I do know that I was schooled on that early on
0: with the uh with the rating and the sleeping bag. I think I think I think there is something to that. And something I bought with my sleeping bag, it's it wasn't associated with the bag or the brand whatsoever. It was just that added you can get them at about 80, $75, eighty seventy five, eighty dollars Canadian. It's a little bag that you put on yourself it's it, one thing I don't like about it is they don't zipper up the side it's like this little cocoon thing and then you get in your sleeping bag with that and that it's really enhances it's a liner that really enhances the insulation of your bag for those extreme weather situations and it's light enough that if I if there's a risk of snow or it's going to drop below freezing then it's an easy add-on to have in my pack on these trips they
1: make them out of silk and then they make them out of Fleece, they make them out of all kinds of, you know, and it really just depends on the temperature you're going in. But I'm a big believer in those. It creates that air pocket, right, which is another level of insulation.
2: For those of you who like the uh, matte finish on your images, you probably would be more inclined to go with the fleece. If you're a glossy kind of guy, they do have the silk available, Uh, 1,200 thread counts so you don't get itchy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's going to keep coming back up from time to time
1: <laughs> yeah you're gonna have to go back and listen to so, the old episodes to i wasn't in on that episode so i you guys bring that up all oh, the time that's and right. I, I don't know exactly i haven't listened to that episode so i don't know what the whole matt versus glossy whole thing was it's
0: all well in this instance it's all about quality of sleep people quality of sleep <laughs> if, if you need to
2: so soap, there you go so you're talking about camping so i'll go ahead and throw in my pro tip for the week and this is going to be a unique one and people are going to take this maybe the wrong way but listening to uh some survival training for search and rescue that kind of thing and my son is we're getting ready to go to alaska but before we do that he's going to go on his annual pack trip with his buddies so they take a long weekend and they go you know 10 12 miles in and uh just kind of get lost get some get some pictures, have a good time and just have an adventure. And so one of the things that I'm going to send them with based on this, this uh, survivalist advice is dog biscuits. And he said that he he takes dog biscuits for survival food for two reasons. Number one, they keep you alive. Number two, they taste so bad that you won't eat them until you absolutely have to. He said, if you take, strictly protein bars you'll eat when you're hungry but if you take some dog biscuits with the protein bars you will not eat them until it is absolute necessity for your survival that's
0: pretty hardcore ron okay let me (laughs) let me just quickly i i only have one thing to say andrew your dad wasn't that bad having you eat cold ravioli out of the can on those trips i really wasn't do you hear this now andrew
1: <laughs> oh that 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 is right out of left field that is a. I can I, it makes sense it totally makes sense it's
0: yeah. gonna keep you do alive not do but this at home yeah who's gonna pack it a... i'm i'm taking my cliff bars or my protein bars my power bars of whatever sort i'm dog biscuits yeah sorry i can see lots of pranks happening out
1: of haven't this one. been
2: It's true. This is right out of the survival handbook. I don't know which handbook, but it's out of one of them.
0: Uh, Or who the author is. You hear that? Uh, Oh, got to go. See was guys.
2: Brief. Uh, All right, Mike, what do you have? Is it better than a dog biscuit?
1: Well... Yeah. I think it's better than a dog biscuit and it's usable and it's not something that you're going to wait till the very last minute when you're on your last <laughs> breath to eat. Uh, you know, every time we do these pro tips, I don't get really prepared and I end up looking around the, the office here and I'm like, what am I going to do? And I just happen to look down and I use these little miniature tripods for everything. And we've talked a lot about action, action cameras. And, uh, If you are Osmo, yeah, Osmo Pocket Osmo Action, GoPro, any of that kind of stuff. I oftentimes end up, you know, you want something to mount it to. So it's not, you know, you're going to mount it to your helmet or to your head or to a chest pack. But sometimes you just want to set it on the ground. And these little itty bitty tripods that you can pick up and there's so many different varieties. I got three varieties sitting right here. But the one that I'm showing and we'll try to put up a link, it's called the UltraPod. It's set up where you can strap it to a branch on a tree, so if you want to raise it up so it's not just this little bitty tripod, but it's great. You can set it up on a picnic table. It's got like a little mini ball head on it, so you can get just about any kind of configuration. And in the earlier podcast, we were talking about trying to shoot these fish. You know, if you're going to put an action camera in the water to try to shoot salmon going up a river, I'm thinking, what tripod am I going to use for that? And you need something that's pretty small, so I think this is the ticket. So I just highly recommend picking up and it's pretty lightweight. I take it everywhere I go. I throw it in my pack if I have enough room and I always have a little tripod with me. I've actually even put the Sony that little Sony A7 camera on this and it's wor it's it's dicey. It doesn't it's not recommended, but it'll work in a pinch. So highly rec- recommended.
0: I like the fact that it's got that velcro strap too so you can use it elsewhere and you're not limited to that eight inch height or whatever the
1: yeah yeah like. you can wrap it to a pole i've actually put mm-hmm. it in the car you know on the on the handle next to the door sometimes you'll have a handle just to help you get in the in a truck or something right. you can strap it to that and then with the ball head you can get it your horizon nice and straight and do some good stuff so highly recommend it if you're using any sort of action camera they're also good for holding lights you can do all kinds of stuff with them so it's sure. pretty versatile
0: yeah for the weight how much are they
1: Mm, 20 bucks 25 bucks oh oh really yeah they're
0: cheap with the ball head and everything yeah whoa all right i want that link i'm looking forward to that link because i have something it doesn't have a a rotating ball head like that it's this mini tripod that i have for the gopro but that would be way better
1: yeah and i'm sure there's many variations on this so but we'll i'll find this one it's part this one's been around forever i've probably had this I have, like, three or four of these in one of them in every pack, and I've probably had them for the last five years. So,
0: But I well, know they're still get, out there. You get full credit for a quality, useful pro tip this week, and Ron gets full credit for a very original <laughs> pro tip
2: this I week. Would, I can't even say it's original because I actually heard that from a survival guy.
0: Well, original... <laughs> Okay, out of context, uh, is there some merit to that? Way in left
2: field. Way out of context. I'll give I you think that. if
0: you're going the dog
1: biscuit route, I would go with the dog jerky instead of a dog oh, biscuit.
2: Oh, no, that's bad, bad, bad.
0: <laughs> Sounds like you're speaking from experience.
2: Yeah. Well, I,
0: I, there, I, there is one person on this podcast who has tried a life straw in an elk wallow. Oh. That's not good either. And it's the person you can hear laughing the most. Just it to be was bad. another. Not do lie. not do that at home. Water so filtration is it. awesome in the field, but that's that's extreme again.
3: Woo.
2: Woo. How are you gonna know if you don't try it?
0: There are lots of things that I don't need to know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some people love the sky dive and that hey. Go to it, but I really don't need to know that one.
1: Yep. bungee jumping, skydiving, dog biscuits. <laughs> Pass.
0: All <laughs> in the same box, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. All right. Well, good, good pro tips this week. A good. Sorry, I should say, let me stand corrected, a good variety of pro tips this week. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to the Great Bear Rainforest and beyond. I'd like to welcome Tim Irvin to the podcast. I'm excited to have this conversation with Tim today. I've known him at a distance for a little over a year. I've been following him on Instagram. We have a couple of friends in common. I enjoy his work, his perspective on life, his outdoors adventure personality. Tim is a talented photographer and naturalist and is the founder and head guide of Wildlife Journeys specializing in bears and wolves of the great bear rainforest and today's podcast will be a lot about that but trust me there's more depth to this there's some stories that I'm really looking forward to hearing about with Tim so welcome to the show it's nice to see you in person over Skype FaceTime likewise (laughs)
3: likewise nice to meet you uh over the internet as it were and it's a pleasure to be here with all of you thank you very much
1: so let us know where you're coming from at the moment. You're not in the Great Bear Rainforest at the moment, I don't think.
3: I am not. It's, it's funny. It always seems surprising, but I actually live in Quebec now. Uh, my wife has a very good job in Ottawa, so I moved here a number of years ago, and uh, I live in a little place nestled up against Gatineau Park here. So there's still bears in my backyard. They're just black ones instead of white and grizzled ones. And uh, and I make trips out west each year to to get out into the Great Bear Rainforest and do what we do out there so it's uh it's a nice arrangement i grew up in ontario so i I do love this kind of forest but i I definitely miss the mountains and the ocean having those in my backyard all the time
1: it sounds like you got the best of both worlds
3: it's not bad it's not bad yeah
2: so how much time do you how much time do you spend out there tim
3: it varies from year to year i think this year it'll be about five weeks um which it's funny, right? It seems like such a pittance. It's such a short time. I mean, uh, years ago, I would be there for, you know, not long after the bears come out of hibernation until not long before they go into hibernation. And and I always hated to leave at the end of the year. And now, uh, just with the demands of a young family, I've got a two- and a four-year-old, and uh, I do a, I've do. i got a bunch of other kinds of work I do as well. And so right now, getting away for five weeks of the year uh, feels amazing, <laughs> but my, my younger self would be... Uh, really dismayed by that for sure
2: yeah i'm still trying to make it for my first week so Mm. i'm still envious even though there's only five weeks a year
3: yeah
0: so tim when did the spark come or the connection to get you into the great bear rainforest where did that project initiate from
3: you know that that was just sometimes you just never know where life is going to take you right And, and it really was a series of coincidences i was I'd finished my degree in biology. I was working as a field biologist. I'd been doing studies of birds and uh, even squirrels. I'd spent several months tracking lynx through, the, through northern Maine, doing a study of lynx there. And I'd been hopping from contract to contract. And then I just happened to have a friend of a friend call me and said, hey, uh, there's this grizzly bear lodge on the west coast, and, and they like to have biologists work as guides there. Would you be interested in that sort of thing? And, of course, like immediately – you know, the the hair stood up on the back of my neck when they, they they explained to me that hey, there's you know like forty, fifty bears using this estuary and and, and the surrounding area, and uh, you know you, your job is to take people out and explain natural history to them and set them up so they can take pictures of bears chasing salmon. And I thought, you, your ki- you're like that. That's a job. You can you can you, can, you can, that's a th- you can do that. You know, it's like your know, your high school guidance counselor doesn't you know tell you that that's an option, right? <laughs> And so anyway, the, the answer was yes, I would be interested in that. And I managed to talk myself into a job at that was Night the Lodge, and that was in 2003, I think. And uh, so, so it was just, it wasn't a place that was on my radar. I mean, I'd heard of the Great Bear Rainforest, but it seemed so distant and so exotic as to be out of reach. So it wasn't like there was a spark and I chased it. It was just that um, I got perhaps the luckiest break of my life. Yeah,
1: it's a great. one. That's pretty awesome.
3: Take yeah, it. that is, and that is the gift that that keeps on giving. I mean, it. I can't tell you how extraordinarily fortunate I feel to have got that job and then everything that's come from it. You know, because it is such an extraordinary part of the world.
1: Can we you talk just... about that a lot because it's the same for me. I the mm-hmm. guidance counselor didn't tell me you could be a photographer. <laughs>
3: Of course not. And if they knew, they would have warned you against it, right?
1: (laughs) Well, that's probably true, too. But then when I found out, I was like, huh, maybe I'll give that a go.
3: Yeah. No, good for you. I I wish I would known that earlier. You know, I I wish I'd, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but the obstacle for me with photography, like I didn't, when I first started guiding, I didn't even have a camera. Well, that's not true. I had a Canon AE1 and a 28 to 85 lens, I think. Uh, Not so awesome for shooting grizzly bears. But um, I was always frightened away by the expense of photography. So, you know, for the first number of years I was guiding, I just kept on being like I was a field biologist and taking notes everywhere I went. I didn't take any pictures at all. But uh, eventually, you know, bought a third hand Canon 10D and a second hand, you know, 100 to 400 lens and got started. But did you just jump right in, Michael, or what, what did you do?
1: Same thing. You start with just really crappy stuff, right? Because you just can't afford it. You think you can't afford it and you can't actually. I couldn't. It was a very minimal setup, but at least get you out there and you, you get exposed to it. And then everything you do from that point forward is always a quest to make better pictures, which is part of the equipment and then part of the behavior and just everything leads to that. But it it took, it took a long time,
3: you know, many
1: odd jobs and many different things before you can actually make a living at it
3: oh yeah oh yeah i remember hearing a story of paul nicklin he he was working some horrible manual labor job to save up for his first underwater housing i think he was still in university and he he finally saved up enough money and he got he went down to he was living in victoria at the time and he went down to the shore and put his camera in there and stuck it underwater and he hadn't sealed it up properly and he fried his camera oh no (laughs) Yeah, and it was like weeks and weeks of just toiling at some manual labor job, you know, and everybody's got some version of a story like that. But that, that was a, must have been a particularly painful one.
0: Yeah, but clearly Paul persevered, like many of us do, and and yeah. done exceedingly well with his career, too. Sure. yeah. Just for some of our listeners that may not know where the Great Bear Rainforest is located, can you describe that? Just a dime. Yeah.
3: Down. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. So the Great Bear Rainforest, if you haven't been, it's coastal temperate rainforest as opposed to tropical rainforest. And it's located, uh, if you picture, uh, it's a, just a thin strip along the west coast of British Columbia. And it stretches from, at the north end, from Alaska, all the way down to just about, uh, just about halfway down Vancouver Island, except on the mainland. So it's um, the mainland forest that stretches from about midway from Vancouver Island up to uh, Alaska, and it's, it's the big, you know, people say it's the biggest piece of intact temperate rainforest uh, left in the world. And, and that's, I mean, it's a very special ecotype anyway, because, you know, it only covered less than 1% of the entire planet to begin with before we started cutting it down. Uh, and so that's what makes it particularly special is that it's relatively intact compared to other parts of the world where this forest type exists.
0: Well, what an opportunity to share that with people to take them out and expose them to it and educate them about it. There's something I read that was quite interesting about you that I didn't realize there were these certifications to be Mm -hmm. certified as a level three bear viewing guide by the Commercial Bear Viewing Association of British Columbia. What's Mm -hmm. the difference between a level one, two, three bear viewing guide?
3: Yeah, I think it's mostly it's funny because when I when I when they started that, the bear viewing industry was starting to grow and they realized hey, if, if we don't sort of regulate ourselves, somebody's going to regulate us. And so we should create our own certification program. So at first it was just you, you took a course and or you were grandfathered in. I was grandfathered in because I'd already been guiding for a number of years uh, before they started doing this more officially. And at first it was just a simple um, certification. You were certified or you weren't. And then I think they realized that, you know, there's a lot of difference between somebody who's a first-year guide and somebody who's 10 or 15 or 20 years into it. So I think level three uh, essentially becomes your number of years for a number of years working in the field, um, running an operation, and uh, um, and essentially it comes down to how much interaction you've had with bears.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, how do you get? So, is there a process to get that certification, or it's more just proving your experience? And there there
3: sure. is. I mean, you, you have to, and again, I, I'm not exactly the right person to ask because again, I was grandfathered in. So um, oh, I see, there, right. there is a course you take. And then I think what you do is you submit your hours. Uh, if you're employed at a particular lodge or with some sort of bear being operator you submit your hours. Uh, and, and I can't speak to any greater detail than that because uh, I, I don't actually know. I should probably sure. find out.
0: <laughs> well, no, but that makes sense. If you're grandfathered in, I, I just never <laughs> realized that there were these levels of certification. So I was just purely curious what that required it's it's good that it exists i'm sure yeah.
3: but, oh it's it's, you know. it's great it's great that it exists just because it, it creates a standard where everybody's speaking the same language and you you have a faith you can you know that when somebody goes to british columbia to work with a bear guide as a photographer or just a nature buff you know that they have somebody who at least has a baseline understanding of bear behavior and ecology and how and human bear interactions mm-hmm. and that's really critical if we want to keep this a safe industry and it's in extremely safe industry and those of us you know on this call we understand that perfectly well but uh for people on the outside and again i think we tend to forget because we live in this bubble where we understand really well that we can get along well with theirs but I, I, I and i was thinking about this the other day i think we forget that on the outside uh a lot of people are still scared of bears and are not trusting and so i think it's important that we have this standard of uh practice um within the bear being industry just to make sure that uh we stay safe and that um, the industry has a good name.
2: Yeah, I think when, you know, especially in the lower 48, the Yellowstone ecosystem, Mm. there's a lot of uh, misinformation out there Mm -hmm. about about the bears and about being around bears. Mm. And I think the issue is, especially in in my area, the only thing you ever hear about is the negative interaction is that right whether, mm. whether it's you know on the bear side or on the on the person side you know i think you could take every interaction or every negative interaction back to human behavior mm-hmm. and it's it's unfortunate that that's all you hear about and and so we try to educate people you know about just the opportunity to be around bears and as well as be around bears safely for for the bear and for the individual and i think you know you're talking about a very unique area and obviously we're going to get into that and there's a couple other areas in alaska uh, that are very unique and is the amount of interaction with those bears and uh, the time ty- the bears are used to to having the people around as well
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I let think me just
1: add on to that because i think in addition to what you said ron i think the other thing is is and i used to get this request all the time for stills and i get it for video now if somebody's looking for some footage, they want a grizzly bear growling yeah. or they want this massive pose. And it's like, right. mm, you know what? I've been doing this for a long time and I've seen a lot of bears and I don't see that too much. Unless yeah. it's a bear against bear, right. you know, very seldom do you see that behavior. And, but that's what the media wants because they want that shock value to, to hype mm-hmm. it up. And I think it's just so wrong.
3: It's interesting, too, because I notice even in wildlife documentaries, obviously in Hollywood films, but even in wildlife documentaries, they often insert uh, bears making sounds, grunting, groaning, roaring and stuff that I never hear bears do that. You know, it's like <laughs> uh, it, it happens all the time. And and I mean, I understand they're trying to engage an audience and tell a story. And, and sometimes you, you need to do that, you know, uh, to keep things ticking along. But uh, it is a little frustrating sometimes because very frustrating. Like, yeah. Like Ron was saying, it's like, you know, we're, we're trying to educate people and and. To me, the the common theme here is just trying to sort of reconstruct this um, or improve the human relationship with nature. And bears are, I think, a neat way to to bridge that because there is so much inbred fear there, but there's just so much potential for the relationship to be a positive one.
0: Oh, I've got a few things I can spin on that. I'll start with my dad. He mm-hmm. was totally fearful of bears. And mm-hmm. I took him on a few black bear photography trips, week-long trips with me. And he turned from fear. Like the first time I took him Uh, Was on a place kind of halfway between where you and I live, Mm -hmm. and there was this road. We had a gated road. We walked down to where these bears were coming out. We hit behind this mound of dirt. I had, I was just starting out. I had an old four hundred five six. I was just finishing university, but I'd been exposed enough to bears not to run and be frightful, yeah, and be respectful with distance and so on. So we're behind this mound of dirt in the clearing. My dad's behind me, and this huge black bear boar comes out on the other side still close to 100 yards away, mm-hmm. and steps out from the forest edge. And I hear something behind me. I look over my shoulder. And my dad, who was not a young man, was gone. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking and, and he's, he's running as fast as he can run. I mean, this is why we went in there, was to see these bears. Wow. But he was so uncomfortable. So I'm like, OK, the situation has changed. The bear saw somebody run. I'm just yeah. going to leave now and let things settle down. So I grabbed my tripod, walked out the few hundred yards back to the where we'd parked I'm like what are you doing he's like he's like that bear was huge and you are way faster than me I'm getting it so then then he traveled with me on a couple of photo trips and he just within a year or two just loved bears and loved nothing more than watching them we had uh, an opportunity where we would go, where there was a lot of bear activity of all different ages, and there is was yeah. uh, spring mating behavior, the cubs in trees, and trees, mm-hmm. and he was able to witness all of that interaction and appreciate how intelligent the species is, and, and really associate with them, really see some of his own personality in some ways, and he mm-hmm. loved bears from then on. That's, and it took a, those yeah. intimate experiences to gain that and one other thing I'll just quickly say social media now I saw a viral one this week on the more positive note it wasn't a necessarily a good situation mm-hmm. but it was humorous to engage the general public in a, in a positive way with bears where a black bear sow took and maybe you've seen it was on it was on Instagram as a, as a video this week it seemed to be everywhere
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, where this black bear sow brought these two cubs into the backyard mm-hmm. into a pool and they climbed into the pool. And it was like the best mom ever for a summer afternoon. Wow. And whoever the homeowner was was filming it with their smartphone through the window. Yeah. And the yeah. bears are in the pool just lounging every summer. And then there's a pool noodle. And they pick up the pool noodle and the two cubs are standing playing. And then it shows them climbing the little chain link fence and leaving like they were never there. That's and, amazing. Yeah. That's it was amazing. Good. I
3: have, I'll have to look that up. It was good. Yeah. See, I, I'm sure we all have stories like this, right? I mean, I remember. To me, because we're, you know, growing up, we're all fed these certain stories about what bears are and, and what the human bear relationship is. And typically that's a negative one, right? Uh, starting from the nursery rhymes you learn and everything on up to Hollywood. And I think it's about getting deconditioned to that and, and, and seeing bears for what they are. And I mean, when I, you know, when I showed up at Night Inlet, I had very little experience as bears, even though I was supposedly a bear guide at the time. And I remember going up the, there's no logging road there that they take people up in mm. old sort of like vans to take people up uh to the viewing platforms in the fall and we and the, the manager took me up there and, and he, he he stepped out at one point where there was kind of an old gravel pit and he's like oh tim look at this look at all these bear tracks here and look there's a bear bed here and there's another one there and i was like my senses my whole body was tingling because i'm like oh my god there's bears everywhere <laughs> this is literally my first day in the job right and i am just every sense is just tingling i'm on high alert and then there was like a a, a breeze blew and when the wind blew, it it slammed the door on the van, and I nearly <laughs> jumped out of my skin because I was just on such high alert, right? And and it was so amazing. Over the next you know weeks and months and years, they started doing that to get beyond that sort of fear that we were taught, you know, and to be and to, and just like your dad saying, to see the true nature of the bears and and you know what they're actually up to and, and what they're not up to and, and get through all the mythology and that that's a powerful experience for people and i love hearing experiences like you just described with your dad and i i have heard other people describe that as well it's really great
2: i'm excited to, i'm excited to get to the other kind of bears that you typically spend some time with <laughs> right but one thing one question that i had is i mean you've you've spent more hours in the field or as many hours in the field as as probably anybody out there with with bears but you've also spent it with people that come to you specifically for that experience mm. do you see that kind of mentality in your guests or are they do you think mentally prepared for what they came there to experience
3: yeah that's Did a great it... question i think most of the people that come tend to be um doing things like listening to your podcast or following our instagrams or you know maybe they are familiar with e McAllister's work or whoever they're, they're kind of our tribe most of them already, but not all of them. I had a gentleman who came up a couple of years ago, uh, and he really got dragged on the trip by his wife. And he, um, his wife had to force him to leave his giant like, ten-inch hunting knife at home because he wanted, he really wanted to wear it on his belt. He was he was really scared. We were going to the Black Bear Spirit Bear Country, not Grizzly Bear Country, and he was he was really scared to do it. He he thought that the whole thing was crazy, and uh, he's a lovely guy, but he was just caught up in the mythology of the big bad bear and on the uh a few days into the trip he he, in the afternoon he he fell asleep in a spot of sunshine you know leaning up against a log and when he opened his eyes there was a bear maybe 20 feet away from him and it was really neat because this was maybe i don't know three days into a five-day trip or something and he said it was amazing because his his heart jumped a little bit, and then it settled down. And he said, you know, if this had happened to me on the first day, he said he probably just would have gone bananas. He wouldn't have been able to mm-hmm. contain himself just for the, the the visceral fear he would have experienced. But even in that short period of time of seeing what these the, the human bear relationship can be, uh, it really turned him. And there's been a number of people, I'd say there's been, you know, 10 or a dozen people who are pretty similar to him. But most of the people who come, I would say, are already of our tribe to one extent or another. Yeah.
0: So I'd like to introduce the place you're working at now, as far as the guiding goes. Um, But just how many years has it been that you've been working with guiding at the Spirit Bears?
3: Mm. Well, it's, the short answer is Marvin and I, Marvin Robinson is the GitGat man that I collaborate with. And he is, sorry, the Get That First Nation. Let me be clear about that. So Marvin lives in a little town called Hartley Bay. It's 200 people. It's accessed only by road or float plane. Tiny little place, beautiful, quaint little place with no roads in town except boardwalks. People drive their ATVs and golf courts around around to, to get from place to place. And so we formalized things about, about five years ago. Uh, but I first met Marvin in 2008 when I was working on uh sailboats in the area that would do like sort of a week-long trip around the great bear rainforest and i love those trips and we used to stop in for a day uh during each of those week-long junkets to uh try to see a spear bear with marvin and that, that's when i first met him and realized that hey this guy uh has a great wit he's super funny you gotta be really careful because he loves being sarcastic and he'll catch you he, he's, he'll he'll check awesome. you oh yeah he's good fun but he's also an extremely knowledgeable guy, having lived in the area his whole life and having, you know, the deep roots of his First Nation there. So we formalized this about five years ago, and um, and yeah, we've been ticking along ever since.
0: So if somebody goes on a Spirit Bear trip with you, and let's I, just some of the details I'm excited to learn. And I know some of them from speaking with you in the past,
3: mm-hmm.
0: some of my own inquiries, but. Let's just take a moment and educate the audience who may not know. I mean, I expect a vast majority of our audience knows what a spirit bear or chromody bear is, but there will be those that don't. And you know, How special are these animals? What are these bears?
3: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. It, it's so easy to take for granted that everybody knows what we're talking about here, but a spirit bear or bear, it's Ursus americanus chromodyi, they are um, a, a subspecies of American black bear, and, and they're denoted by this recessive a double recessive trait that turns their fur white. So it's an American black bear that's white. And when you encounter one of these things in a you know, dark green rainforest, it, it, it really is startling. And, and, and these bears, um, you know they only occupy a very, very small area. It's mostly on the islands in the Great Bear Rainforest, on uh, the northern islands. And, and also there's a small number of them on the mainland as well. But that is a really small portion of the range. So all told, you I mean, if you read the popular press, they'll say there's, you know, four or 500 of them. But in the scientific literature, the estimates are more like, you know, 200 or less. And I think it, it, it's quite possible that there's even less than that. Uh, nobody has. I mean, even with the population estimates of have been done, I mean, they're crude estimates of bets. So, so frankly, we don't know how many there are, uh, but there aren't very many. And they're, they're, they're pretty special.
0: So in the region where you guide, what percentage of the black bears that you view would be white, would would you guess?
3: Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we definitely see um, there's definitely more black bears around than white bears. And that, that a bit depends on the year. Like I would say that in the last couple of years, we had this extraordinary thing happen that we never would have imagined in that we had three white bears occupying the same salmon stream. All females. And so we had the the matriarch, her name's Ma'a. This means grandmother in the local Shinshan language. It's Marvin's people's language. And she's this, um, she was the bear that was on the cover of National Geographic. Paul took her photo. And she's been in a lot of documentaries. And she's just a wondrous bear. I mean, she's just so comfortable around people. And um, she'll just walk within a hair's breadth of you without blinking an eye. And, you know, she'll fall asleep on a mossy log and let people take her picture. I mean, she's just this. It it it's, it this sounds weird. It sounds trite, but I've had times when she walks past me, and it actually made me feel more at peace. There's something about being the presence of this gorgeous white animal in the rainforest that has so much trust in you that she just walks, literally right right by you. And um, again, that's not it's not something we definitely necessarily encourage for our, our guests. But you know, I've spent hours and hours and hours with her, and Marvin has built this relationship with her. And anyway, I, I'm losing my thread here because you got me thinking about her, but. <laughs> um, that, i love so that
0: description last, i feel about, that you know yeah. there have been times where that happens in in mm-hmm. nature and wildlife so I, I, that resonates
3: I, yeah and most of the time it's not like that right so anyway so i, I would say the uh, i mean officially the ratio is that on this one island 50 percent of the bears carry the allele they carry the gene that doesn't mean the 50 percent of them are white it means they at least have the gene that could make them white if they bred with another one that had the white gene Um, but i would say the percentages um that that we would see that are actually white are you know maybe 20 30 percent but again that depends on the year in the last couple years it's been these three bears that just showed up in this area so it was a lot higher percentage than that but uh, in years previous to that i would say be much lower lower than that yeah so we spend a lot of our time watching black bears and photographing black bears and then the hush falls over the crowd when a white bear steps out of the woods and things get really exciting and you better hope you remember to change your memory card before that happens.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Thank goodness for big
0: memory cards now.
2: Mm-hmm. What percentage of your trips to actually get to experience a white bear? I mean, obviously, when you have a situation like that, you can, you can maintain some consistency. Do you ever have uh, guests that just aren't fortunate enough to see a white bear?
3: Yeah. I mean, obviously there's a spectrum in people's experience, right? You know, no trip is created equal. And some people obviously have more powerful experience than others, but we have only ever had one trip where nobody saw a bear, um, a white bear that is. And I, you know, I am, um, reluctant to say that because I don't want people to think it's, it's a sure thing, uh, because you are trying to see and photograph one of the most rare bears in the world. And there's always a chance of failure. Um, you know, cause you know, the, the, the weather gods could, the salmon gods, could not cooperate. And that's what happened last year. We had, uh, it was a really poor salmon return, and it was uh, a major drought um, for those people elsewhere uh, listening. I mean, B.C., most of it was on fire last year. And even on the coast, it was a drought. I and mean, there was a rainforest, and there was no rain. And so the salmon had a really hard time. A, there wasn't that many of them. Um, and B, they had a really hard time getting upstream to the spawning beds. But, and, uh, and a lot of them died. And so the, the salmon run petered out early. And so late in the season, uh, we had one group of people who didn't get to see one. I mean, they saw bears, but they didn't see a white bear. And that that yeah. was tough. You know, as a guide, we want so badly for people to experience this thing that means so much to you, right? That, that's a big part of what it is, you know? And, 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 and it, it was a really visceral disappointment for me. Um, but fortunately, that's a really rare thing where we are.
1: Right. The thing is, is it's nature. I mean, you cannot predict nature. and yep. It's just one of those deals. I go, uh, you know, I've been to a lot of places a lot of times, and a lot of times you, you expect that experience you had last year. Oh, I'm going to see yeah. that big bull, or I'm going <laughs> to see that big bear, or I'm going to see mm-hmm. Cubs of the Year, or I'm going to see whatever it is, and mm-hmm. it just does, it never is the same.
3: No, that's absolutely true, and I try to make that clear to everybody uh, within the literature because, you know, we have only had one group that's not seen a bear, but we've certainly had groups that, you know, caught a glimpse only versus other people who've had ma'a walk right past them and fall asleep in a log right so there's a huge spectrum but there was only that one trip that was devastating as i might say
2: yeah Yeah. and it's not it's it's not devastating i mean people need to understand that yeah that's like mike said that's nature and it's circumstances outside far outside of your control Mm -hmm. but as a guide you do take some personal responsibility and you do take it personally when you can't produce what you're What you've promoted, but again, it's it's yeah, exactly. It's the highlights. Again, there's no control of the situation on your part at all. So, yeah, but it is unfortunate.
0: Yeah, it is. It
2: is unfortunate.
0: Spending days in the Great Bear Rainforest is still a privilege, and that ecosystem's so unique and so dynamic. There's so much going on. There's so much education you can share, and it's a guarantee that you will see wildlife. Yep. It's oh, just oh, yeah. everybody wants a spirit bear. And, yeah. and as you pointed out, you know, the vast majority of the time they do have that experience, but you can't yeah. guarantee it.
3: Yeah. Well, and, you know, it, I, I was in touch with all the people on that trip personally because I, uh, you know, I felt bad for them. And, and a lot of them were like, oh, no, no, it was it was a great trip. It really, they, you know, they still, like you said, Mark, they had a wonderful time. And this one guy in particular, um, Charles, he, he he got some of the most stunning black bear photos you know, and black bear photos in that environment are tough because it's, it's a pretty light is usually an issue there. It's pretty dark and you got a black bear walking around the shadows. It's tough, but he, he pulled out some real magic there and I wonder if he would have pulled that off if there'd been white bears walking around, you know, mm-hmm. you might've been distracted and missed those moments. Yeah.
1: Right. Well, you touched on wildlife. I mean, obviously the, that's the keystone species that you're going for is the, mm-hmm. the white mm-hmm. bears, but there's probably wolves. There's probably, mm-hmm. I mean, how much other wildlife do you run across?
3: Yeah, again, that depends on the trip. But you can, I mean, you know, the mammals, we got a whole suite of marine mammals, right? We had some great stuff with orcas last year. Uh, that's more rare, but we typically see humpbacks almost every day. I mean, I've been standing in Hartley Bay talking to my wife on the phone and seen a hump, humpback whale breach, you know. And uh, so we see them days, sometimes we see, uh, you know, Stellar sea lions, dolls, porpoise are commonly come and play in the wakes of the boats. you know, river otters and, you know, Martin often, you know, like every, uh, many other species, they congregate at the river mouths or at the rivers to, to feed on salmon. So they're often entertaining and an awesome photographic challenge because they're so quick, right? But, uh. Yeah, so we get black bears, white bears. We actually saw a grizzly bear last year, which is a whole story in and of itself because they have been moving onto the islands, which is not part of the original range. And there's been scientific a scientific paper published about this, and we actually saw this fabled bear uh, last year. And we, we've seen wolves. Um, wolves, I tell people, are people often ask, are we going to see wolves? i like, well, you can think of it as an amazing bonus. We don't <laughs> often see them, but we do see them every year. But, uh, you know, odds are against you seeing them. But uh, we do see them, and uh, of course one of the things that's special to me is, um, you know, these are all just the mammals we see, but just also like the bird life, you come into an estuary that's filled with salmon and there's just going to be a cacophony of gulls, a cacophony of ravens and crows and eagles, you know, immature and adult birds. And you're going to have, you know, your, your, your thrushes and they're all singing along. And it's, um, it's just a, the whole suite of things is amazing. And like the, the mosses and the, and the lichens dangling off the tree branches. To me, I, I think this is kind of the privilege of a guide, being a guide, because you're out there so long, you get to appreciate the nuance a bit more. Because, you know, I feel sorry for these people. They only get to come for, say, four or five days. And they're so focused on, on one particular thing. Sometimes I think, for some people, not everybody, some people don't have this problem, but I think it's hard sometimes for people to sink in and see the forest for the trees, if you understand what I mean. And as a guide, it's a bit of, you know, when you're out there, especially when I used to be out there for six months of the year, to see the whole transition of this coastal ecosystem through the entire season. Man, that was a wonderful thing. Yeah.
1: Tell us the story about the bear. I would. I'm interested. You got me intrigued about the grizzly bear. If, <laughs> oh, okay. If we well, have time, and if it's not too long,
3: I'll try. I'll try to make it concise. But, but typically, the you know the grizzly bears occupy the mainland fjords they don't tend to come over into the archipelago of, of the BC coast. That tends to be the black bear realm and, and also the white bears as well. Um, but there've been reports of grizzly bear sightings uh, in some of the First Nations communities and elsewhere. And so the Raincoast Conservation Society, Chris Daramont, uh, being uh, leading it up, um, led the study uh, where they started doing a bunch of uh, hair trapping uh, all around the islands and on the mainland and uh, looking for evidence of grizzly bears. And so they, you know, take a Pilot brush and pour a god awful collection of salmon guts and rotted salmon blood on it. Put a perimeter of barbware around it so when the bear comes in to sniffy, he gets some hairs. And so what they found was that yeah, this um, these locals, the the First Nations people and others who had witnessed this were were right. This wasn't just like uh, you know one one or two bears. There was a lot more bears moving around and expanding onto those islands uh, much more than anybody thought was actually possible. So actually going beyond the border of what the provincial government draws as sort of an official grizzly bear territory in the province. And so, you know, there's maybe some management implications there, but um, there had been one on the outside of Princess Royal Island in this particular place, and Ian McAllister had had seen it there, and so it was a big old grizzly bear, male bear. And Marvin had uh, come across it once and was startled by it. Marvin spends most of his time in black bear territory. He's not used to coming face-to-face with the grizzly bear, and I think it startled him Um, in as much as the guy is a bear whisperer like nobody I've ever seen. But, uh, yeah, we were up in that valley a few years ago looking for white bears and wolves and not having a lot of luck, and then somebody just saw something move in the forest, and uh, there was a whole bunch of dead salmon down in the river, and as we looked around, we're like, oh, my goodness, look at that. And All of a sudden, you know when you see something move, and all of a sudden, your focus changes, and you're like, oh, my God, look down there. There's some tracks. And I go down, look at them. Those are grizzly bear tracks. And then I look, there's some grizzly bear beds, very clearly grizzly bear activity. We finally get a look up through the woods, and there's this big old bear sitting up there in the woods staring down at us. And uh, I, I don't, I tried to explain all this to my guests to help them understand the significance of this, uh, but I, and I, was, I was amazed. That was pretty amazing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's very interesting. I mean, that stuff goes on all the time, and you kind of. Yep. You, you do get focused on one species and oftentimes you miss the other stuff
3: yeah and there's so much flux in ecosystems and in this particular place it's a pretty small salmon creek and so you know there's black bears there there's a big old white bear that lives there that's actually in the imax movie the great bear imax that just came out and there's wolves and you just think geez with that other big competitor in there competing for not a lot of salmon in a small space that must be really changing the dynamics of what's going on in that valley so it's pretty interesting just to sit there and look at the sky at a distance and think about all those things that might be happening because of him being there.
1: Well, there's all those misconceptions too, right? Because Mark and I were in a location last year where they were, we were seeing grizzly bears and black bears regularly in the same spot. And, Is that right? and uh-huh. in my mind, I just didn't think that I, you know, they coexist, but yeah, yeah. this was coexisting at a very tight level.
3: That's neat. I've never but seen But it that.
1: didn't seem like it was a big deal. To me it didn't seem like the black bears were on edge or that the grizzly bears were trying to wow. to hunt those black bears. It was just a common thing. And maybe That's it was because of the salmon and you yeah, know there's was there's just a not a lot of competition. Fish. There's plenty of stuff to eat, so it's all yeah. good, right?
3: Right, right.
1: But That's it opened yeah, my I, eyes.
3: Yeah, I've never seen that before. I mean, I've come across grizzly bears or sorry, black bears in grizzly territory that are really badly scarred up like faces and noses disfigured and um and i've seen black bears in areas like that that they're fishing for salmon but they're down in the worst habitat you know the grizzly bears are holding for it in the best fishing grounds and the black bears are somewhere else picking up scraps the best they can so that that's a really interesting observation huh very cool
1: yeah we're gonna go back this year and see if we can see it i don't know i mean i don't know if it was a you know we don't have enough experience in this one area so is that something that's that way every year or is it, was that just an anomaly that last year? Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. About to find out.
2: Yeah. Uh, with, you know, in a, in a small ecotone like that with the bear densities that you have, what is the recruitment rate for, for the black bears? I mean, are they, are they reproducing successfully or is that, is it pretty limited given the number of bears in that area?
3: I mean, we see we see uh, a small number of cubs each year, but we don't see, you know, it's not there's not cubs going gangbusters, gangbusters all over the place each year. Uh, and some years uh, there'll be, you know, one or two cubs in one river valley and not in another one. And so, <clears throat> yeah, I think you're right. You know, with that density, in small areas, small creeks, the recruitment rate's not terribly high. Um, but, you know, in the Great Bear Rainforest as a whole, the survival rate of cubs is much higher than in other parts of North America. But yeah, there's not, you know, seeing cubs is still always a really special thing, for sure. And now that you mention it, you know, nobody has seen cubs in one of the creeks that we work on, live, uh, sorry, work on where Ma'a, that matriarch lives. Her, I'm just trying to think back in time. She had two black cubs. Oh, geez, how many years ago was that now? Uh, I'd have to look back, but it might be six, five or six years ago. And I don't think we've had cubs in that valley since. Hmm. So we're always, you know, there's three white bears in that valley as of the last two years. One of them is moving on. Ma'a's moving on. She's getting old. She was showing her age. She's losing muscle mass. She's not dominant in the river anymore. You know, fingers crossed, but you know, nobody knows if we're going to see her again. And that's pretty sad. But these other two bears are young and healthy and looking good. And so we're hoping maybe one of them will produce you know, they're coming into their prime.
0: Lifespan for black bears is about 30 years, mm-hmm. if without any other accidents or things happening to them, right?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, depending on where they live and, and all those other things. I mean, there can be a huge range. I've even heard of some in the Territory BC living as long as um, 40 years, but Marvin thinks, he doesn't know for sure, but he thinks Ma'a maybe only 18, 19, but she's definitely showing her age, definitely slowing down. But, you know what? It might not just be her age, right? She could have something else going on that we don't know, right? We don't have a veterinarian checking up on her, you know, who knows? Yeah. yeah.
0: And just jumping back on that river topic too, where we were fortunate to experience that where black bears and grizzlies were cohabitating, the black bears even had cubs of the year. And a wow. grizzly might have by 15 minutes before. The black bears always subordinate, you oh. know, but as Michael said, didn't seem fearful, but the cubs of the year would just follow her and, And not just along the coast of Alaska, but in the northern Rockies, it's frequent to see, you know, you'll see a grizzly bear and you could see a black bear in the same spot half an hour later, but definitely avoiding one another. And grizzlies tend to be in some areas where black bears aren't, but there's a lot of country where they do overlap. I just believe, you know, sense them and avoid them to the best of their ability, but they do share the same space. And I think the benefit where we were, again, was the forage. There was enough there, Mm -hmm. salmon. Mm -hmm. That there was no tension of any significance between the species
3: sure so, sure that makes sense fascinating stuff yeah
0: oh it's oh. fun to watch totally it, just to get oh, yeah. immersed in it you know and that's why these trips it's, it's <clears> always <throat> good not just to have a day or two but if you've got time oh, to really yeah. experience a location like that oh
3: yeah. I, I, absolutely because again you, you can appreciate the nuance more and you know take your eye away from the viewfinder a little bit after a while once you once you get some photos you can relax a little bit and then just see what's going on and i mean that's one of the things that's always been amazing to me about the Great Bear Rainforest is, you know, I, I grew up in Ontario and I did field work all over, you know, northeastern United States and all over Ontario, Alberta, Manitoba, all over the place. Spent a lot of time up in the, you know, the northern territories of Canada. But until I went to the Great Bear Rainforest, I never had the opportunity to watch, like, bears interacting with each other. I would just see, like, hey, there's a bear. You know, maybe, maybe there's a mum with cubs, but I never got to watch, like, multiple, multiple bears of different um you know, of different ages and, and, and different places in the dominance hierarchy uh, you know, interacting with each other. And so when I first got out there, again, I'm sitting there with my notebook and my pencil, and I was just feverishly scribbling notes trying to understand this behavior. And to me, it was just fascinating because I'd never been able to see any kind of bear density like that before, and it's still fascinating to me. And I, I used to try to anticipate, like when two bears would come in close uh, proximity to another, I used to try to anticipate and, and predict what was going to happen, like who was going to be dominant, who was going to back down and, and try to figure out how it would go. And I think I got better at it, uh, but that might've been in my imagination. You know, I can't, I'm not, I'm not a bear. <laughs> I like to tell myself that I was getting better at it, but um, it was a neat opportunity, you know, cause it's just not like that in other places.
1: Well, I found myself, yeah, doing exactly that where you're like, Hmm, what is this situation? Right. I, I was photographing at a, in an estuary up in, in the remote part of Katmai a couple of years ago and yeah, these two monster brown bears were like chumming it up. Like they were buddies. Like it was, right, right. hey, let's just have some fun. Obviously, there's plenty of salmon, there's plenty of food, so there's no competition. But these guys were just like lovey dovey. And I don't know if they're males or females or what. Yeah. But you're like, hmm, I wonder if they're siblings. Right. I wonder if they grew up together. You know what? You just are constantly trying to think of what is that dynamic that allows them to be that way.
3: This is. To me, you just hit on something that's so interesting. It's it's the mystery, right? It's like the things that you can't know. You know, there was a really neat uh, thing scribbled down somewhere I read years and years ago uh, about you know it some studied bears up in the Rockies somewhere where they they knew that there was this one bear who had had a cub who'd had a cub, and and they, I think maybe they were all collared or something, and they were all always doing their own thing and they're falling around. Then at one point they all they all converged into one place and hung out like in super close proximity for like I don't know a week or something, and then they just diverged again. It's like, good luck explaining that if you're the biologist on the project, right? (laughs) You know, just like you say, Mo, but maybe those were siblings that just came to hang out, you know, who knows? And and this, this trio of like grandmother, mother, and daughter hanging out for a week and otherwise going their separate ways. I mean,
1: they've got to know, right? They've got to know (laughs) that there's this, this connection. Um, It's just like when I talk to people about trail cameras in the forest. Mm-hmm. You know, we like to think we're sneaky and we're putting a trail camera up that no animal's going to see. Right. That, every time you put up a well, for <laughs> me anyways, an elk, a bear, a mountain lion, a bob, that's the, when they come into that area where that trail camera is at, what's the first thing they're looking at? Yeah, it's if like They a know immediately. They're yeah. so in tune with their environment. So you got to think they're in tune with
0: the other creatures. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I've got to jump in. I can't. I can't
3: resist. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it.
0: But okay. So this is their home. It's live or die. Their senses are so superior to us. So imagine if somebody, so, the coyote brought the trail camera into your house. Yeah. Put it on. Put it on the end of your couch. That's
3: a great analogy.
0: And it's like, you walk <laughs> into the room. It's like that wasn't there yesterday. <laughs> so it's the same. These animals all yeah. pick up on it. Yeah. And They accept it if it's non-intrusive, if it's not stinky, and if it doesn't have a big flash kind of thing, and then they go about their business a few days later, perhaps. But as far as the bear personalities, now this is my belief. It's my opinion, but it's based on 20 years of interacting with bears. And in places where I've walked in meadows with 30 bears around me, they know one another. They're intelligent species that interact on a high level, They communicate with lots of vocalizations and posturing. And in their territories, albeit their territories are large, they can roam big areas, but they have their cycles. They do cross paths. Some of them are friends and some aren't, just like people. Mm -hmm. Some like one another, some are family, some aren't. They're that complex and that amazing. And that's, you know, that's where, like Tim, when you said, when you get the pictures and you have a moment and you put your camera down, and you watch the behavior, not just try to document it and see that time and time again. You know, there are, I've had situations where there were these two boars that grew up in this area and were both in their 20s, huge bears, and very dominant, but totally respected one another. They could be in close proximity, they didn't fight, and they, that being said, there were a lot of bears in the area, a lot of female opportunity in breeding season and stuff, but it's just, was quite something to, to bear witness
3: yeah nice one, nice one.
1: well i don't think we <laughs> give them enough credit i think right. i just don't for the most part i mean the more time i spend and the more time i'm out there i try to give them as much credit as possible because i think you're exactly right mark i think that's the case mm-hmm. it's they're very well aware of and when i explain that about a trail camera if i'm talking to somebody that's new to it and they're putting a trail camera out and they're like oh they knew it was there, to it. and I'm like, yeah, well, if somebody puts something in your living room, you're going to know. That's their yeah. home. Their home might sure. be several hundred acres, but they know it like we know our front room.
3: Yeah, yeah, and you put a foreign object in there. You know, It's the other thing that came up as you guys were talking about this is I, I've often thought, you know, it's like, you know, we can't smell very well. We can't hear very well. You know, our vision's pretty good, but thank like, God, what would it be like? What yeah. would it be like to walk into one of these places and to be able to have the sense of smell that a bear does? even just for like a day or an hour, like I, I think it would actually be really overwhelming for us.
2: Yeah, that's what I was going to say.
3: Oh, it'd be so overwhelming. But think of the things you'd become aware of that are invisible to us, right? And, and there'd just be so much information there sort of bombarding you, but it would be fascinating if you could deal with it.
1: That, I think about that a lot too. If we're up in the Northern Rockies, we'll photograph mm-hmm. bears up there a lot, and you'll see a bear, and there's a lot of human activity. There's a lot of just you know, just foreign smells that aren't nature, right? Mm-hmm. But a bear will put its nose up and put that posture on where, you know, they're sniffing the air. And I'm like, how do you distinguish between all these foreign yeah. man-made smells? But yet you're still trying to key in on another bear or another prey species or something that, you know, mm-hmm. and they're very good at it. And they're way ahead of any of us that, you know, mm-hmm. I pay a lot of attention to what's going on. But, man, those bears, you just key off of those guys to know what's going on.
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh That's, that's neat. Neat stuff. Lots of stories. Can I tell them? Another? Can I? Yeah, go for it, of course. <laughs> <All right. So laughs> you've, got a, you've got an editor, she can cut us off if she wants
0: <laughs> So my first trip in Central Alaska, there are lots of grizzlies around, there are moose, caribou, and to harken back to what you were alluding to near the beginning, Tim, being in bear country and being on the ground and hiking with a caribou or a moose or whatever, is the most alive I ever feel not because I'm scared now or worried about the bears but I'm sharing their space I need to respect that and be smart about it I watch the caribou I watch the moose if they come on full alert they always sense it before me and I'm like okay and I look that direction and can see a bear perhaps or a wolf or something going on it could just be another ungulate but there was on this first trip there were these two hikers that I could see that were maybe 400 yards away going over this ridge trail and we just spotted them and looked up with the binoculars and watched them go just curious where they were going and what was going on as soon as they went over the hill about 60 yards below the hill out emerged this grizzly that had just been waiting for them to walk past right right? just sat in the bushes let it and out it came they had no idea it's just and and that happens you know when you're like oh hello (laughs) anyway they their senses we just can't even fathom, and 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 that for that reason alone, you know, they we owe them respect for yeah. that, not just the personalities. And, and again, I firmly believe they all have different personalities, just yeah. like we do, and the ability to mm-hmm. cognitively think and process everything just like we do. And play. I mean, you look at the bear cubs. I mean,
3: mm-hmm.
0: what is life if it's not just a big play fest?
3: Oh them? yeah, I, you know, and I I've even seen. Uh, in in a place where there was like again a lot of salmon this is later on in the salmon season where everybody's getting fat and healthy and happy i've seen adult male bears engaging in play activity in the water together you know it's there it's you know it's Mm kind of like you know it's it's just the way that an adult bear plays and carries on is is maybe more rare than cubs for sure but maybe that's not so much different than us
0: i don't think so 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 on our upcoming alaska trip i'm going to keep Michael and Ron well-fed, and when they get into the river, (laughs) make sure and just be ready to document if they play. Right, right. They'll wrestle. Yeah. Very similar. Well, I'm very intrigued about your guided tours. It's a secret, but I want to go. So give us a little detail on what your trip is like, what you offer.
3: So I I think what's neat, what I enjoy about our trips is that we are – it's it's really a, a partnership between um, Marvin and his people, the Gap First Nation, and and me and the people that I have coming to work with me, and just to, so you know, we go into this little First Nations community of two hundred people, Hartley Bay, amazing place. These people have been there as coastal First Nations, you know, not in this particular place, but on the coast for fourteen thousand years, right? And when you you step into that community as a, as a stranger, you know. Uh, but quickly, you meet Marvin and his wife and his daughter and his, you know, well, his two daughters and his son and his grandkids, and and you get to know that oh, that person and that person are Marvin's niece and nephew, and before long, you're having this neat experience of getting to know a community, not just like stepping into a hotel or a lodge, and and to me, that that's what's really neat. You know, it's it's mom and pop, and it and it's not um. You know, not everything runs perfectly smoothly in Hartley Bay. At, you know, when we run trips, things happen, um, but. You know, if you go to some of the other bigger, fancier lodges, I don't think you're going to get the same sense of community as you would where we are. And so, anyway, that that's sort of the setting the stage for where you are. And then each day, we we get in a boat from uh, the dock, and literally one of the best places in the world to see a spirit bear is like less than a 15 minute boat right away. And it's it's a magical place. It's like that forest I already described to you earlier, where we, you know, you you step into the intertidal zone, you get the smell of the salt in your in your nose, and then you clamber over some rocks and you, you walk into the forest because you know from the outside it's just a green wall right but then once you step in it's like it's like the curtain the curtains are parted and you see the stage and the stage is like these big hemlock trees and sick of spruce and, and cedars would you know with mosses and lichens you know every step is on this soft spongy layer of of moss and then you look over to your right and you see this like little salmon stream gurgling away and maybe you see a flash of a fish and you start marching up this old bear trail to try to get to a viewing location. And that's kind of what we do. We, we go into a different, uh, usually two different valleys. Like if people are coming for four days. We'll go to a couple different valleys twice, sometimes a third one if there's time. And the weather permits to get this other one that's further away. Actually, the one I described where the grizzly bear was. And so we, we go into a place and we just pick a good viewing location, sit tight, and wait for the magic to happen. Hopefully it does. And... Um, Because we sit tight, it's much more respectful for the bears. They don't need to worry about us moving around all over the place and second-guessing where we're going to be. Um, And people say, yeah, but doesn't that make for a long day? Uh, People say this before they go. And then once you get there, you're like, oh, man, it's time to go home already. (laughs) And, you know, we put in long days. We don't get back to the dock often until 8. We're often eating dinner at 8.30. And uh, we sit around the table, tell stories, and get up and do it again. And, uh, you know, we're often delayed getting back to dinner because there's a humpback whale out in the bay, and then the cooks get mad because dinner's getting cold, but nobody cares. <laughs> well, the cooks care. The cooks care a lot. They get really mad at us. Right. Best... <laughs> so, so yeah, our folk, the trip of the, the focus of these trips really is on the white bear. Of course, you can't help but see everything else around you, including the landscape. Whereas other places on the coast, uh, the focus might be on grizzly bears, or maybe it's a tour on a on a sailboat for a week um, that takes you to some grizzly bear hotspots. Maybe a spirit bear day. Uh, you're seeing whales, you're seeing sea lions, you're seeing some fjords and different things. So you know, for any of the listeners who want to know more, you know, like, I'm happy to answer people's questions because uh, the trips that we do, like I said, are really focused on spirit bears. But there's other things to do in the Great Bear Rainforest that um, you know, there's so much to see. You know, spirit Bear Lodge is another place that takes people out to see spirit bears, but they can also go to some beautiful fjords where there's some spectacular grizzly bear viewing. And we, we can't do that because of where we're situated. We're, I think it's fair to say that we have a higher success rate with the white bears than they do. Um, but they also offer different things. It's a different experience. It's a very high-end lodge, so um, that's a little bit more than just about what we do. But th- does that help answer your question, Mark?
0: Oh yeah, there's a lot of depth there. I like the First Nations experience to start with that and to feel that that history. It just I think gives a an immediate appreciation for being in a, a different place that deserves our respect, and then to go into the wilderness from there. The trips are that you offer. Or how many days long in so four days is what you have a field
3: uh yeah they're they're five and seven and so uh, there's a travel day in there so you have like sort of four days in the field versus six days in the field on these two trips some people do back-to-back five-day trips uh because of the old mantra of you know time in the field <laughs> the more time you have the better chance of being there when the magic happens so um but typically it's a five or a seven day trip and we run them from uh the start of september until Uh, about october 10th yeah something like that and and the reason for that is that's when the salmon are most predictable it's it's really hard to find these bears in the landscape outside of salmon season which is why the season's so short
0: and for people that do have the good fortune to join you at some point in the future special gear i mean rain pants (laughs) raincoat what what do they need to pack that
3: your yeah, rainforest. yeah, definitely you need rain gear. I tell people if they're not sure if their rain gear is up to the task, then just put it on and stand in the shower. You'll figure it out pretty quick. Because literally we get some people that come from Australia, right? They don't even own a rain jacket. They're like, well, I've got that Anorak, you know, thing. And that was a terrible Australian accent. But, um, no, they stand in the shower with a windbreaker on and figure out pretty quick that that's not going to go work in the Great Bear Rainforest. So, yeah, definitely rain gear is key. But from a photography point of view, uh, it's just really critical to have a way to protect your gear from the rain. I mean, it doesn't pour all the time. Um, we certainly have trips go by where it hardly rains at all, uh, and in some ways that's a shame because you, you miss sort of that feel of the rainforest. But people have to make sure that their gear is protected. And um, uh, you know, when it, when you do get two or three or four days of rain in a row, uh, it's you know, it it you can get fogged up lenses and stuff. So you know, I always keep some you know silicone packet silica? silica silica packets in my pack, mm-hmm. try to absorb some of that moisture try to be really careful with how how I use the gear, try not to change lenses on the really, really steamy days, you know, just because you get that steam in there, I had experienced a number of years ago when I had a great opportunity to take pictures of wolves and I was so excited about it, but it wasn't until I got home that I looked at these photos and I realized that, oh yeah, they're all just not good. (laughs) You know, and I think it was just the, uh, they look fine in the back of the camera when you zoomed in, it was all just a bit of a haze so um yeah that, that's another thing people just need to take care of their gear uh, in that environment at least be prepared for it plan for the worst and hope for the best
0: that's good advice so did i read correctly as well on your website that you're now offering wolf tours
3: yeah Is- we're, doing, we're doing a couple a year we're doing a couple a year and and these are these are really different things so as opposed to coming back to town each night and you know having a nice meal at a table and having a nice cozy bed and maybe a shower this is we we camp out in the wilderness on these trips uh for a week at a time and we make it a week because you know if you want to have any chance of success with these bear these wool, or wolves right we're talking about wolves now yeah wolves.
0: right. coastal yeah.
3: wolves <laughs> okay coastal wolves right thanks uh yeah you, you got to be willing to put in time i mean i put up an instagram post recently that said you know i spent 14 years in that great bear rainforest working as a guide before i got a decent picture of a coastal wolf uh you know they're, they're pretty sneaky and. Um, but uh marvin you know with his depth of knowledge and the depth of knowledge of his family uh, his dad turned him on his dad was a commercial fisherman amongst other things and his dad was telling about this place where he used to see wolves when he was you know anchored sometimes when he was fishing and so marvin has gotten to know it over the years and there's a special spot that we go and we've been having some good luck out there it it, it's been fun because it kind of gets me back to my roots as sort of expedition style stuff because i've always been sort of a canoe tripper and a uh, sort of expedition type guy. So th- 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 those those trips are pretty fun, but um, and we've had great success, but I would put them in the high-risk, high-reward category. They're not for everybody.
0: More adventurous, mm-hmm. but you would probably see more wildlife over that duration just being out there every day longer.
3: Well, yeah, yeah, just, that's exactly yeah. why I do it. Yeah, you're, you're setting your clock to the rhythm of the wildlife in the area as opposed to, you know, trying to keep make sure you don't get the cooks too angry when you come home and finish. <laughs> <laughs>
1: i want to do that trip see that that kind of stuff is more intriguing to me than the the cushy (laughs) lodge bed awesome food Mm -hmm. i'd rather eat mountain house for five days and right get better pictures
3: yeah for certain people it's exactly the thing they're after uh it tends to be the minority of people i mean most of our guests much prefer a soft bed at night um but and that's good because we can't really offer too many spots on these on these wolf expeditions. I mean, it's just it's a very limited thing, so you know we only take out six people at a time and and that's it. Um, but it, it's pretty exciting. It's pretty exciting and uh, yeah, that, but those are probably the things I'm. Well, I, I always say this. That's what I'm most excited about right now. And then I go to the next thing. I'm like, oh no, I'm pretty excited about this too. So. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I think that's the that that's the draw, right? I mean, you get to you have the luxury of working in a location that's a bucket list trip for everyone else mm-hmm. and just the biodiversity i think is the is the draw including you know the rainforest itself mm-hmm. and just just that environment and that ecosystem but you juxtapose the the coastal wolves or the 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 white bears against that and it's just a a dream location
3: yeah yeah, I mean, I think you, I think you really nailed it there. I mean, the thing is, you know, we could all go see. I mean, you can go to Kamloops and see a white bear there in the zoo, right? Wow, well, that would be a crazy experience, right? Like crazy, and not in a good way. But to me, it's like that thing. It's like you can see a grizzly or a white bear in a zoo, but when you're there, there's a couple of places in the Great Bear Rainforest. But there's towering cliffs and there's waterfalls pouring over them. There's eagles flying by and there's like literally a thousand gulls and maybe two hundred eagles flying around and a raven, and then maybe. 300 meters away, you see a, a, a grizzly bear walk by and that is powerful stuff. You know, you, you know, who cares if you get a good photo, but it, it, you know, it, just the, the bear in that environment is, is mm-hmm. so evocative, right? Which I think speaks to what you were saying. Ron.
1: And Ron just alluded to it. He's, you work in a bucket list environment, right? Yeah. So you experience this bucket list every day or mm-hmm. when you're out there, mm-hmm. what is a bucket list place for you? And what is the species that you want to go get? You've got this. What is that one thing that you want to go get?
3: You know, it's so funny you say that because, you know, I've had a lot of friends who become guides and, and you know, they work in the rainforest then they'll maybe, you know, go to Churchill for a short period of time, which I did for one season. And then maybe they'll go to Antarctica and then they'll go to the Arctic. I just never did that. I mean, I just got so fascinated with the Great Bay rainforest that I just kept going back and I never, so when you guys start talking about, Alaska and all these other places that you've gone and shot, I think, geez, that you I mean that sounds exotic to me. Because you know, northern BC. I mean, God, I lived in BC for a long time, but you know, I haven't really photographed grizzly bears up in northern BC. But to me, to answer your question, um, I would love to go. Uh, and again, I used to do research on lynx. I would love to go and photograph lynx. I think you know, the, the first time I saw lynx, I've been working on, I've been tracking them through the woods for two months, hadn't seen any. And the only reason I saw this one is that it was caught in a trap. There was a, like a, a, a trap by scientists that we were, were calling the animals. And, you know, to, walking up to this animal with this, like, huge ruff of fur and those eyes, you know, just piercing eyes. I mean, I, I just think they're the most stunning animal, and I've never even come close to photographing one. I think that would be amazing. You know, right know if... now,
1: in Alaska, in parts of Alaska, the hare population is right. just mm-hmm. about peaking out. So, so they, I think they, if they, you're going to yeah. do it... Yeah. Uh, we could definitely put you into some good locations, whether you oh, find yeah. them or not. That's so hard, but there's well, a couple a of spots where I know people have had some great luck. Yeah. And Mark and Missy last year, I think Especially you learned Missy. to do it, Mark. Especially Missy, she was able to shoot uh, uh, links with kittens.
3: No kidding!
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so we can we can give you those back. locations.
2: I got back from Alaska this spring. Michael and I were up. Uh, photographing eagles and the day after i mean i don't even know if it was the day after i think it was when i landed in denver to come home i get this cell phone picture of a lynx (laughs) that michael sent us and i'm like you gotta be kidding me
1: (laughs) wow i do have a buddy in anchorage who has a house up on the edge of the forest there and I bet he sees, well, you know, in good years, he sees the links every one, every couple of days. That, that and is, it'll that hang is, that out in his yard. amazing
3: to me. That is just so foreign and exotic sounding to me. I know. I know. Ah, That's it. Wow.
1: When I'm up there, I, he's always, he'll call me. And I'm like, well, what are the chances? You know, it takes me 30 minutes to get there. So what are That's the chances he'll be there business. when I get there?
3: Yeah,
1: yeah right. You know, so <clears throat> you never That's, know.
3: It's so funny because I'm always like, God, I got to start deleting some of these Spirit Bear pictures. They're taking up too much space on my hard drives. What I would give for just five lynx photos, you
1: know. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, that's awesome.
3: Yeah, links are
0: awesome, but not yet. They're incredible, but not many people would say they'd be trading off spear bear pictures for uh, <laughs> many others.
2: I De- wouldn't be deleting anything. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'll yeah. send you a hard drive, Tim.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, stack of them. Yeah, You're amazing.
0: Yeah, links, links for me have always been random. It's just been there, it is, you know, and, and few and far between. And, and when they're there, you hope they stick around. Sometimes they don't care at all, but they have an agenda, whatever's going on in their mind, right?
3: Right. Yeah. Well, it's funny. There was actually, I could hop in my car now and drive in uh, 15 minutes to a spot where there was a Lynx hanging out. Uh, that was maybe seven years ago, because uh, links are not common here where I live. But there was one hanging out there about seven years ago. I was away at the time, so I, I missed it. Uh, but I, I'm hoping that maybe at some point in the cycle the links will then come back south again. I'll have another chance, but not so far.
1: Those well, things stick
0: in your memory.
3: Yeah, yeah
1: we'll, I'll just keep you updated on, on email <laughs> and just let you know if it's a hot year.
3: Well, I can guarantee that I will not be able to get away from my wife and kids. So <laughs> you can do that, and that would be exciting for me. But I, I won't be able to go, that's for sure. All right,
1: well, yeah. I'll text you pictures.
3: Yeah, that would be great. I would, yeah. I would love that.
2: Yeah, you say that now, but then when he does it, <laughs> it's not so good.
3: He's shaking my fist <laughs> from afar. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So people can find out about your company and what you offer with these incredible, adventurous wilderness trips to the Great Bear rainforest Forest on your website. and. Can the bookings and questions be directed right through there? And if so, we'll just put a link to your website on our show notes on our website as well. So people can find that easily when they check it after the podcast. And if you'd be so kind to share a few images, uh, they can be low resolution with a watermark so that people can see the splendor of this incredible ecosystem where you've had the good fortune of spending a significant part of your life and continue to do so.
3: Yeah, I'd be happy to share
1: for sure. And share your uh, Instagram handle on air here so that people know they can just go look at a lot of the stuff right there.
3: Oh, geez, I'm going to have to look it up. What am I? I think I'm timothy.irvin on Instagram. That's I-R-V-I-N. Yes, I am. I had to check. timothy.irvin at Instagram. And it's
0: all there. It's all there, too. It's worth going to and worth following, Tim. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the information will be easy to find through our website and, of course, through yours directly. We'll put the links in our show notes along with the material that's been discussed today. I want to thank you very much, Tim, for taking the time. I've enjoyed just sitting and listening to so much of today's podcast. Mm-hmm. It just resonates with me right to the core some of the adventures and experiences that you've had and that you've shared with us our listeners today. So thank oh, you.
3: My pleasure, guys. I, I just wish, like I said, I could turn the tables on you and pepper you guys with questions. Cause uh, <laughs> I, th- I, think, I think we all have so much in common and, and, uh, Yeah, there's lots of stories we could share, and I hope we get a chance to do that.
0: I hope that you've enjoyed hearing today's podcast with Tim Irvin taking us to the magical place that is the Great Bear Rainforest in northern British Columbia, the home of the spirit bear. But the conversation didn't end there. Tune in to our next podcast because we joined Tim hearing about his incredible adventures on extended I don't want to give too much away here. Canoe trips in the far north of North America, northern Canada, along the Arctic coast, and the adventures and experiences he had will have you listening to his every word. And if you care about the environment and wildlife and just an intimate adventure, this will be right up your alley. Next podcast. You can find more of our team's work on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and on our website at wildandexposed.com. And no matter which podcast platform you're listening to us on, make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button and to give us a five-star review or a thumbs up as those help us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a regular basis. I want to thank those of you that give us a shout-out on social media and that those that share the comments and questions with us. We appreciate all the interaction and get back to everything that we can. Keep those questions coming in. Anything to do about wildlife photography, nature photography, outdoor adventure, because we are accumulating the best of the best, and we are going to do an upcoming episode featuring a variety of questions. And in fact, our team's been talking about doing that regularly. So stay tuned, send them in. We look forward to each and every one of them and we'll definitely be highlighting a bunch in the near future. And I have to spend a moment and thank our hardworking and talented producer, Missy McKenzie, for all that she does behind the scenes to bring you this podcast for your listening enjoyment. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.